This episode is sponsored by Oribi, an all-in-one marketing analytics tool to empower businesses of all sizes to make smarter, data-driven decisions. If you're worried about attributions, it's time to stop using traditional data analytics tools. With Oribi, you enable all your team to get the data they need without requiring developers and new code for every new event. Traditional analytics platforms simply provide more and more data, and it just gets more confusing. With Oribi, they help you understand what to do with that data. Oribi is like having an analytics and data employee in your business 24 hours a day. If you'd like to learn more, visit oribi.io and set up a free account and take the right data from your site and turn it into smarter business decisions. If you'd like to sponsor the SaaS District podcast, visit horizoncapital.com slash SaaS-podcast today. Thanks again, folks. Hello, hello, everyone. This is your host, Akil Jabbar, and welcome back to another episode of SaaS District. In today's episode, we'll be talking about how to build your SaaS without coding, SaaS product design, and best practices. Today, we have our guest, Neil Shah, joining us. Neil is the CEO and co-founder at Think Nimble, a software development and design agency focused on helping founders scope their tech builds and plan their strategy alongside a strong product plan. So welcome, Neil. Super excited to have you on the SaaS District show today. Thank you, Akil. It's really good to be here. Uh, so I want to get in, you know, a common challenge I hear from many maybe early stage founders, right? They're the ones who are maybe non-technical. They're really good, you know, at product or sorry, at, you know, business development. They're the CEO. Uh, they're good at sales and marketing. And they have that vision of exactly what they want to build. Um, but a common challenge they have is like, I, I just don't know how to find a, a CTO because I think that's a good way to maybe build their product or they don't know how to get started. How do you typically work with those type of founders who come to you and then you know, help them work alongside them to actually go out and build their business and build their vision uh, into reality? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it might help. Let me start uh, with a little bit of my background because I think that gives context on this question. Um, I have both been in the market to find a CTO and I've also been that, that CTO style person um, at different stages of my career. So I think I can answer it from both, both sides. So my background is I am a programmer and a developer. Um, I started my career by starting a nonprofit, which is a long story called Social Impact 360, but skipping ahead a bit. I, uh, I was uh, one of the first product managers at a company called Everfine, which is an ed tech company here in DC. I helped to manage and run a few educational technology products um, and did everything from wireframing and design to product vision to coding and to hiring and training engineers. So I sort of have seen the whole gamut by, by working with, with them. I left that company, uh, and in 2013, I started a tech company called Aspire, which is an HR technology company that provided both traditional and non-traditional benefits to uh, to companies. We worked with companies um, as diverse as, you know, we worked with early stage companies. Some of our notable clients were Uber and Geico, Northwestern Mutual, United Bank, sort of like big brands were working with us to manage their benefits. And we went through a few rounds of, uh, of venture financing, selling between our Series A and Series B to a company called Markham, a large accounting firm, I think one of the top 100 accounting firms in the United States. Um, so I've sort of seen that whole uh, track record. And when I was leaving um, after my acquisition, I wanted to stay in the startup world. And so I started 
uh, investing in early stage startups. And I found that I'm a terrible investor. I lost every investment that I did. I'm just like atrocious. I get so excited about ideas. I invest in people and I get so into the idea and then the idea doesn't work out, right? So um, me and a couple of the founders who were working on Aspire got together and we said, hey, like, you know, our primary struggle as a, as a, as a series of entrepreneurial adventures or whatever, our primary struggle was in finding the CTO and technical partner. And so we decided to build the agency that we wished we had when we were starting our startup. And that's what caused Think Nimble. So we are a software development agency. There's about 30 of us. We build uh, early stage MVPs and software products for early companies. Um, and I think our value proposition is in being that CTO. So sort of like the wrapper around the code, you know, like we don't just sling JavaScript. We try and figure out business objectives, business goals, product roadmaps. Um, and a lot of our philosophy and theory is around that. So I think there's a bunch of different ways you can find a CTO, right? And obviously I'm biased because we run an agency that serves as a CTO, right? And so, um, but I think there's, there's, there's a lot of ways to approach it. The one thing that I'll say is that like our primary theory is that every business and every app is an experiment and every experiment must have strong experimental design to be effective, right? And so too often we see startups, um, you know, at different stages, right? Um, come to us and say things like, hey, here's my pitch deck and um, here's what I'm doing. And it's the same 10 slide pitch deck that you see at every single investor. Piece. It's like competitive analysis slide, checkbox of features, you know, like problem solution, all that stuff. And when you're one of the many, right, you're not really thinking about the, the, the deep sort of implications of what you're doing. I think the best startup pitches and the best app pitches are the ones where people say things like, hey, if these 10 things are true, my business will work. You agree on that and I agree on that. I've done research. I know that these five things are true. I don't know that these five things are true, right? I don't know if there's a willingness to pay beyond the DC market. I don't know if there's going to be continual repeated purchases of my customers after one year. I'm not sure if I can go into the business market, right? So I'm going to set up an experiment over the next year to systematically prove that these five things are true. You and I both agree that if all 10 of these things are true, this business is going to work, right? So please fund me to run an experiment to see if these five things are true. And if that works, we can move together as partners in the next stage of my business, right? A good CTO thinks in that way, right? They think about prioritization. They think about like how to tie features and items back into those hypotheses, right? And then they sort of help you manage that experiment that you're running in an effective way. I think a lot of times when people look for CTOs, they look for coders and they look for people who can write, you know, JavaScript or they can write Python. I was reading the stat that uh, this may or may not be true, but there's 1.8 million more JavaScript developers this year than there was last year. Uh, because it's just such an easy and prominent thing for people to be learning. Boot camps everywhere, online courses, all this stuff, right? Coding is becoming a commodity, right? And I think everyone who's in that world knows the thing that makes it work is tying those to business objectives. Like code only matters if you apply it to a human practice, you know? And so, um, uh, yeah, so when you're looking for a CTO, I think those sorts of things are really important. I do think that like CTOs are really hard to find. Someone who has really strong technical background also a really strong business background and can help speak your language of prioritization to the CEO in terms of building your business, right? Um, so I think, you know, obviously, I, I personally, like we run an agency that does this, right? So I think there are a lot of sort of consultants and agencies that can service that. Um, part of the reason we got acquired was the balance sheet value of the tech team that we had in-house. So I do think that over the long term, it makes sense to bring a CTO in-house. Um, there are recruiting agencies, there are people you can go to who can help figure that out. But it is a very critical hire and I think it needs to be a very thoughtful one. Yeah, I completely agree. So, I mean, maybe even at the early stage, I mean, how critical is does that that kind of role become? Because if I'm a, uh, you know, CEO, I'm a founder, I, I'm not technical, and then I go and hire an agency like Think Nimble, 
Uh, and then I want to go raise capital. Does, does that really impact, you know, how the investors, you know, look at it? I mean, you've, you've been on the other side of it as well. And, you know, from being acquired to investing, yeah. you, know, you say, okay, like, you know, you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. You, yeah. You know, you have a good idea. You're probably pretty good at sales and marketing. Um, you're just working with an agency. You don't have an actual partner who's going to be involved long-term in this, or maybe they see that as a risk. Yeah, I think, I think it is true. I think that like, so the way that we operate, I think is slightly different than most agencies. The way that we work is our goal is to, partner with early stage companies for the first year to offboard ourselves so that they can build an in-house technical team. I do think an in-house technical team, as I said before, is like very much part of the balance sheet value of your business. People acquire companies all the time because of their tech team, right? Um, and agencies are a risk, right? Like when you work with an agency, there is like, there is this idea that they, you know, there's a contractual relationship and they're not necessarily employees as part of your company. On the flip side, right? Like hiring a tech team is a skill and it is like a very expensive endeavor to do right. And so, um, you know, especially at moments when people are like, I'm just looking for a technical person to get started or in the, the early stages of the rounds, I think there can be this sort of hybrid model where you work with an agency that helps ramp up your technical team, right? It has to be done as a long-term strategy. I think oftentimes when people come to us, they're like, how much is this app going to cost? How much time is it going to take? And we always say, whoa, 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 that's not how we operate. Um, the way that we work is we help you build a product process. And the byproduct of that will be one, two, three, four apps. But once you start spending money on technology as a tech company, you probably will never stop, right? For the rest of your life, you'll be spending money maintaining and supporting and building new features mm -hmm. and iterating if you're doing this right, right? So um, what our strength is, is setting up that process and then helping transition that process over to your team so you can help management manage it. And I think if, if agencies or teams don't think in that way, that's often when things become uh, a problem, right? You build a version of the app, they pass it over to you. You don't have people in-house who can maintain the backlog. You have to go back to them to iterate, right? It becomes this sort of messy relationship. So I think like deep partnership and deep thought is what makes these things work. Um, and uh, I think that's critical to it. I do think that like as soon as you can hire an in-house technical person, um, mm. you should do it. Um, and oftentimes if you can hire a technical person and you have an agency or a support sort of like staff around you, you know, this can be a core part of your business and this can be sort of like support, pinch hitting, sort of like augmentation, right? And you need a front end person, but your technical person is only a back end person. You can call that group and they can they can fill in the gaps or whatever. But you have an in-house guide. Sometimes the CEO can serve that role. Sometimes the, CG, the CGO can serve that role, right? Sometimes just an in-house developer can serve that role. But I do think that's a critical role, like a technical minded person on your team. And how, you know, complex or deep would you, you know, say a founder want to work when, you know, using a software development agency, like, you know, let's say they want to go and build the next, you know, ERP solution, like the next Oracle or, you know, large streaming platform. And, you know, how far and complex does your service will be, you know, part of that integration or, are you, you know, focus on like MVP, uh, you know, minimum MVP and then, you know, some kind of launch up to like beta that you get your early customers and then, you know, you probably want to hire somebody or, or you know, how, how involved do you think it's good to, to, to be involved at that stage? For uh, for Think Nimble or just for uh, generally? Maybe, maybe in general. We, we can say both, but let's say general. Yeah, yeah I, I would say generally like um, the... I mean, the more complex the project, the more technical talent you want to have, right? The nature of that mm -hmm. technical talent being in-house or not in-house, I think is primarily a question of like funding, relationships, business structure, and like, uh, you know, whatever the structure is in terms of how you, you partner with, with an agency. I don't necessarily know if there's like a, a rule of thumb around it. I mean, the more mm. complex an app is, uh, we found, right, the more thoughtful design at the very beginning really matters, right? Like, mm. I was uh, I was reading, you know, there's this, uh, there's this sort of um, series of technical guidelines called the 12-factor application, right, where they kind of go through what it means, 
to build software application in like the right way, right? Like, you know, don't repeat yourself, make sure you make things modular and scalable, write things in a way that they can be reused and, you know, patterns are sort of like, you know, um, um, you know good patterns are being used throughout the app. And it's funny because like when you read that, it's the same principles oftentimes that people talk about with business, you know, like make sure it's modular, make sure it's scalable, make sure that you can like, you know, undo and redo things. You don't have too many dependencies across your business units or whatever, right? And so like, I think that like, that sort of like very thoughtful design um, can be done by a CEO, right? But oftentimes you need someone who can bridge both the business language and the tech language to be able to make that happen. Um, we find very often that like people will come to us. We're usually the second agency that people work with. They often go overseas and they find someone or they find like a low cost agency. They build the first version of their app. They go through their beta program. Naturally, you just come back to them and say, hey, this is not what I what I really wanted, right? And then they, uh, they go through the second cycle of iteration and the fundamental structure of the app doesn't support the next version of the app. So it becomes an expensive redo. And then that's when folks come to us and they're like, look, we just want to do it right the first time around, right? So I think... Uh, having a technical partner who does it right the first time around, I think is really important for high growth startups, especially because the nature of a complex app, right, is like, if you're if you're raising money and you're growing, right, they're going to, you know, you raise 12 to 18 months of runway so that you can get to the next stage of growth. You can't spend four of those months undoing and redoing what you did in the last 12 months, right? So like, making sure that it's well thought out is, is super important. Yeah, I've seen that happened twice with two different, you know, people I know very closely, uh, you know, one went out overseas, you know, said, hey, they could do it for a third of the cost. They did it. Um, you know, it was usable, but it just had so many bugs, so many issues. And yeah. uh, I think the code quality was just not there. So, I mean, at the end of the day, like this wasn't, a, you know, usable product for, for end users. And then on the other side, you have somebody who, you know, who spent a lot of money. He, he, he did hire somebody, you know, locally in, in you know, North America, but then he, he didn't know, he's, he's like, I don't know how to manage developers. And like, yeah, you get really, really good code, but it's not usable either. And it's like, I spent all this money and it doesn't get me anywhere and like all this time. Yeah. So yeah, you have, well, you have that's to why I think, that I think sometimes it's helpful to have. I think that's totally true. And I think that is like, hmm. that is the pattern that we see over and over again, mm-hmm. right? But like two things came out of what you said. One, um, cost of technology is like a really interesting concept, right? Like if you think about it, if you pull yourself back over like a three-year time horizon, right? Mm-hmm. The cost of an app is three years of application development, right? And so mm-hmm. oftentimes when someone says, how much will an app cost? They're talking about yes. how much the version cost, right? And in the same way, if you were building a house, right? You could say, how much does a room cost, right? And you'd be like, oh, the room is like, I don't know, like $5,000 or whatever, right? Um, but in order to make the room happen, you have to build a foundation. You have to like make sure you've got blueprints. You've got to make sure you've got like a you know ductwork that goes throughout the house. Electricity is set up well and all that stuff, right? So the room in isolation has a cost, and it's easy to anchor around that. But the mm. project as a whole, right, is the thing that you really care about. And so getting to that number is a very hard endeavor, right? And there's some engineers who just believe in like no estimates, no cost, and that is supremely frustrating for uh, for business people, right? To be able to sit down and be like, well, what do you mean? It's like an infinite cost or whatever, right? Uh, but the flip side of it, right, is that like a lot of business people will go through and say like, hey, I want to minimize cost as much as possible. As a tech company, your tech is the center of your business. It is the most important asset that you have, right? And like the value per dollar is the most important thing to optimize for, not necessarily the cost overall, right? And so provided that you have the funding for it, right? And you can make it happen, Every dollar that you spend on tech should have a multiplicative impact if you're building your company correctly, right? And so, like that multiplicative impact is the thing that you want to optimize for. Mm, that's, that's a really good analogy using the, the house analogy for, for explaining people. Um, when it comes to product design, maybe uh, can you talk about maybe some 
maybe common SaaS product design standards that we should be maybe following for better results? Yeah. Or is there any like recommendations specifically for, for SaaS products that we, we should think about? Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we see a lot of the same technical patterns play out across a lot of our apps. And we work, we work across a variety of industries. I would say like our favorite types of clients to work on are socially focused clients. So people in the ed tech space, the health tech space, the government technology spaces, like sort of like voting and that sort of thing. Um, the, but we work with all sorts of startups, you know, um, and although they may be in totally different industries, there's sort of a lot of different patterns that we see. So like two-sided marketplaces, you know, riders and drivers, hairdressers and people who want to go to hairdressers, uh, renters and landlords, right. That sort of technical pattern is the same across a lot of different apps. Right. Um, and so I think a lot of times when people, uh, and you know, there's like data driven search, right. Where you've got a really complicated database and you want to see a simple sort of, uh, you know, visualization of that data being shown to you. Um, there's, you know, e-commerce style patterns that you see over and over. Right. Um, and so I think a lot of times people will try and anchor their product design in their industry, right. And they try and find another company and they sort of base it off the company. But if you pull yourself away from that and kind of abstract up a level and think about the technical pattern and interaction patterns that your users are having on your platform, you find a lot more, uh, design patterns. And there's tons of resources on this. Like I really love this website. I think it's called, um, UX onboard. Uh, I'll, I'll find the name and maybe we can put it in the notes or something, but it's a, uh, it, it does breakdowns of onboardings that uh, that uh, that major companies have, and like I learned so much by going through those patterns, right, and just seeing how people think about it. And I think good design and good good uh, you know good sort of like interface uh, has to be philosophically driven. It's one of the reasons like we hire almost entirely in house because like we we specifically think, and it's like you know every other agency in the world is like offshoring and like looking at like low cost solutions, and we're like we have an expensive office in DC and we hire everyone in house and it feels like a pretty terrible business strategy. But the reason that we do it is because like the philosophy on how we build is so important. You know, like we, everyone should be thinking about these hypotheses and these reasons that they're trying to build the thing that they're building and then tying that to the design that they're doing. So um, I would say that like apps are split up into three different sections, right? People think about the data for the app, the logic that permutes that data into something that's usable, and then the interface that underlies it. I think a lot of entrepreneurs, particularly non-technical entrepreneurs, they look at an app and they think of it as a series of interfaces and they see like, you know, a screen and a walkthrough. And then honestly, like that's how we consume apps all day long, right? We consume interfaces. And so it makes sense that you think like that. The background of the app, the logic and the data is the section of the app that developers spend most of their time thinking about. It's like, how do you properly construct data and logic to be able to tee up a front end. And, you know, like Instagram, Facebook, Uber, the front ends are like relatively unsophisticated, right? They take a flat list of data in from the back end, they render it in a, in a repeatable pattern. And then you see a series of posts that all follow the same pattern. And there's some like, there's a dynamic nature to the posts, right? And there's like cool interfaces and animations or whatever, but it's essentially a copy and paste, but the data is what changes, right? So serving up that data in a good way, I think is the thing that really matters. And so that it's, it's sort of a hard thing for, I think a lot of non-technical folks to, to get their head around, right? But the way we think about doing it, right, is we ask a lot of our, our entrepreneurs to come to us with what we call an Excel mockup, right? Which is put all your data into an Excel table in one sheet. Then the second sheet, permute that data into a series of like, into a list that you would like an interface to be able to access. And then the third screen, 
draw the wireframes uh, and and use the cell names in the second sheet to be able to render the wireframes in the in the third sheet, right? So like that sort of pattern, I think, is a really good way of thinking about things. Um, if you start from the interface, it's super common. People will go to someone who's like a really good designer, visual designer, right? You know, does like really good designs. And it's often you go to a developer and they're like, hey, the tech can't really support this design because this design, although it's visually striking, is not built around the pattern of data and logic that needs to be put together to be able to make this happen, right? I would say that's probably the most common design issue that we see is sort of like designs that are non-buildable or hard to build, right? Because they weren't built from the data first. Mm. Any uh, maybe common, de- also there's design issues, but maybe um, when, any common issues when it comes to, you know, uh, build, writing code uh, that you found working with SaaS products and maybe how should we think about avoiding those? Now, when, you, when you say like, uh, like technical patterns? Yeah, code quality. Yeah, technical patterns, yeah, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, such a, it's such a big question and I think there's so mm-hmm. many different answers to that. I mean, I would say that like the more that you can think at the very beginning of your project, like you'll be working with a team mm-hmm. um, as a developer, the better the modularity and scalability of your code base will be, right? I think mm-hmm. um, the nature of startups, right, is that we're all mavericks and we're all cowboys, right? And so we uh, just, you know, crunch, crunch, crunch and kind of like launch as quickly as you can, you know? Um, and I think there's something really good about that. Um, and it's exciting, but I think it shouldn't be looked at as being like an ideal, right? The ideal state is something that can be built on top of because, you know, everything that you build, if your startup works will be, you know, six times as big, you know, once you, once you get to the next stage of growth. And so, um, I think that like, there's a lot of developers who, um, with slightly more effort, right. Can properly document and comment on their code, um, properly sort of like organize their, their, um, their code base. So it's readable by another developer, um, and, a, and a pattern that we use often, we have a lot of our developers uh, sort of push code and then do a code review with a random member of our team. And that's really nice because the developer, in having to explain it to another developer, has to organize their thoughts in a way that can be passed off to someone else. And that inherently improves the modularity and scalability of the code base. Um, so I don't know if that's a real answer to your question, but that's sort of like thought. I think it's a really good one. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I want to go deeper on one, th- one, one final thought we talked about. Um, so obviously I come to you, I have this design for this app or maybe the landing page. I have this target audience I want to focus on. I don't, maybe I don't have a clear vision of maybe who my audience is, but I have the idea, right? Uh, especially at the early stage, but the users maybe love how the feel of the app is or the design is. Um, and now I'm like, Hey, I went out and I got this quote. I'm coming to you. I got it from offshore. Hey, look, it costs this much. And you're telling me it's this much because I, I actually, because this is, I want to get this very clear in people's head. How yeah. do you, how are you going to speak to them and tell them like, look, you can go and do this to the, you can go and do it for, you know, half the price, but we have a full, you know, in-house team, but you know, showing that value of like, you know, how our team is going to get you a good product is going to, we're actually going to build you. How do you justify that thought to them? Because I, I, yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it is, uh, uh, that is the primary uh, sort of like sales objection that we get, right? It's like, it could yeah. be a lot where if you go to another spot. And I think that is true. I think it is just like a value per dollar question. Um, yeah. I think that, so a few themes that we sort of touch on, and, and we aren't the right fit for a lot of folks, right? Like there's a there's mm-hmm. an aggregate sort of like cost that has to come into some of these developers, right? Um, and so, you know, the, the um, 
I totally respect and love the idea that early stage entrepreneurs have to do whatever it takes to be able to make their app work. And oftentimes that's not hiring an agency, right? That's like building a Squarespace site or building one of those Excel mockups that I talked about, right? Or doing it with pen and paper until you can get to a point where you're actually able to raise funding to be able to launch an app, right? Um, but, you know, I think going back to the themes that we talked about before, um, the most important thing to optimize for is this idea that your code base should be iteratable, right? Like you should be able to take your code base and quickly pivot and adapt based on the needs of your users. And that requires thoughtful architecture. Um, and so the questions that I would ask developers when we get started, regardless of where they come from, right, is, is like, what is your long-term plan for this app? And how is what you're doing in the short term supporting that long-term plan, right? What if we were to pivot in this way? How would you accommodate that thing, right? What if we decide that our users are going to be businesses instead of customers, what thoughts do you have around how we would do that? And how does that impact your code? And if you see someone actively thinking through those problems as they're setting up the earliest stages of their app, right, that's probably a good partner to be working with. Um, and obviously, uh, we, we love doing that kind of stuff, right? Like, that's the way that we think. The idea of prioritization is also a big question, right? Like, um, it is, it is almost always impossible to predict more than two months out, um, what the exact nature of your work is going to look like as a developer. Most people who say they can do that either are abstracting up high enough that they've seen those patterns play out before. Like I built a user onboarding flow before. It took three weeks one time, four weeks one time, five weeks one time. So let's say five weeks and I feel like I can do it, right? That's like the the level of thought that some developers do. And then there's another thing that's like, hey, um, I don't really know right now. I'm going to say this number and then we'll adapt it as we go along. Um, if someone commits to a list of features and a list of estimates, um, and it's more than a month out, right, then that's usually a really uh, a, a tough sell, I think, for us to, to see. Um, and people come to us all the time and they say, hey, look, can I see what the next six months are going to look like? We have this theory that um, a developer can see really clearly what the next month of work looks like. And you can hold all those things in your head. But the more that you expand that month of work, right, the more cognitive overhead, cognitive overload kind of comes into a developer's mind, and the more unclear the roadmap becomes, right? So you sort of can see the first month in front of you in really high resolution, and then the next, you know, two months in like medium resolution, and then the next six months in low resolution, right? And a good dev firm acknowledges that and understands that. And they, like, if someone says, what's this project going to look like six months from now? I usually say, look, if I give you an answer to that, I would be lying. Unless I put real work into this thing and I dug into those APIs and understood exactly what you're looking for, right? I can't give you that answer now. And honestly, even if I spent that week, it could change in the next couple of weeks, right? That's just how software works. It is a research and development process. And so part of the research is that we will need to pivot and adapt alongside you. So our job as a firm is not to launch features, right? It is to give you all the information that you need to be able to make really good technical trade-off decisions so you can help guide our developers in making those prioritization decisions themselves, right? And so it all ties back to that idea of the hypotheses and the framework of prioritization that you get as a CEO, right? These five things must be true. In order for these five things to be true, these things must be true, right? So these are our priorities as a business. If you can really codify and understand that and hand that off to a dev team and they kind of internalize it and get it, that's a good team to be working with, I think. Um, and again, it's the team that we wished we had when we were starting our startup, right? And so that's sort of the ethos that we're trying to embody at Thinknimble. Yeah, so I, th I think it sounds like having somebody who has that really, you know, long-term product vision, they're not just looking, how do we get from point A to point B? They look kind of the whole, you know, landscape and it's like, look, yeah, we want to build point A to B, but you know, we'll probably might go to, you know, move from, to, from A to C to D. We might have to pivot this way and this way. And when you're building that that, that foundation that we, we think for think of through all of those scenarios and 
um, you know, make, make it you know, realistic that, that, it, that it's developed in the right way. Um, kind of final question around the technical side. Any, any favorite languages or codes that you like to use front end, back end? Just people like to know that stuff. Yeah, totally. Uh, we, so we work in whatever languages our clients are working with, unless it's like legacy or not, uh, like not a modern web framework. I would say that like one of the most important criteria, so senior developers typically are multilingual, right? Like if you, if you understand good coding concepts and principles, right? Like MVC is MVC. You can see that across a bunch of different uh, development um, frameworks. Um, but, uh, you know, like usually a developer is strong in like one or two frameworks. Personally, I really like Vue.js on the front end. That's like the framework that I know the best and I love it. It's very simple. It's like mostly pure JavaScript, right? And then there's just sort of a slight layer on top of it that makes it this really good framework. Um, on the back end, we tend to use Django, uh, or I tend to use Django. Um, our team is React and Vue and React Native on the front end, and then uh, Django and Node primarily on the back end. Um, we do have some Ruby apps that we work on. We do have some Laravel apps that we work on. Um, I would say that those are more on the on the way out. Um, our, our big heuristic when people come to us and they're like, hey, what language should I build in? Is to think about the higher ability uh, after the fact, right? So even if there is like a cool and new and exciting framework, um, if you were to bring someone in, right, and you, you don't want to be restricted by that language in terms of the hiring process, how long would it take them to get up to speed on that? And then if you do want to be restricted by the language in terms of your hiring process, right, how likely it is that you can find someone who would be able to join your early stage job for that? So that's why we really like Vue and React because they're just so well known and like every boot camp in the world is training people in React right now, right? So there's a lot of hireability around those. Um, and I just personally, I love Django. I just love the way that it's structured. Django is a Python framework for those of you who, um, uh, who aren't Python developers. And it's just like well-structured and well-organized. And I feel like there's always like one right way to do things in Django. And mm-hmm. if, you, if you find a big error or issue... Uh, it's often because you're not doing it the right way, right? And so, like, I've been in that situation a lot where I'm like, this just isn't working. And then I read the docs and I'm like, oh, it's because I'm fundamentally doing it the wrong way, right? If I just did it the way Django said I should be doing it, then it would be working. So, mm, that's, that's super helpful. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. Um, Neil, I want to shift gears here. It's been super helpful. Yeah. I want to go on, on the personal level, understanding you, yeah. kind of how you think and, you know, your background. Um, so, you know, you, you've led a few teams here, a few companies, you've had some some good success. Um, obviously, you're leading a company now and, and doing quite well. You know, so being part of a founding team now obviously has to be quite demanding. How do you measure your own leadership success uh, within your own team? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so we are a partnership. Um, we have three um, team members and all three of us were working on that previous startup that we uh, built and sold in 2017. Um I think it's probably helpful to talk a little bit about how we organize ourselves. So um, me uh, and my two co-founders, Marcy and William, uh, I think uh, it's really important for us to always be very, very close to the clients that we're working with. And so all three of us take a functional area of our business on. I help to manage our sales and marketing efforts. And then I dabble in product and dev. Um, William manages our technology processes, but he dabbles in product and uh, sales. And then Marcy manages our product processes, right? But then she dabbles in sales and a bunch of other things around the business, right? And so um, all of us are like pretty close to the folks that we're working with. We're only a 35-person team, right? So it's not like... I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a good-sized team, right? Um, but it's not like so unwieldy that we can't all be very directly connected with people that we work with. And we always say that our goal and kind of our measurement of success 
is the multiplicative impact that our leadership can have on the team that we work with. How much can one action that we take help unblock two or three people in the things that we're doing, right? I'm a huge believer in this idea of like servant leadership and the idea that like our job as leaders is to make it so that everyone who works with us like is better equipped to be able to do their job because of the actions that we're taking. Um, And uh, so because of that, like culture, um, sort of like, you know, work-life balance, um, being able to be trained up really well, career development, all that stuff is super important to us. And I think those are those multiplicative things that kind of cascade across an organization and block folks. Um, I do think that like, you know, primary skill for a leader is listening. And um, I think especially as the team gets bigger and bigger, structured listening becomes harder, right? Um, um, I personally do one-on-ones with every single person or a team every eight, uh, every eight weeks. And you can imagine the scheduling nightmare that goes into that. It's like a huge chunk of my life and a huge part of my, my days, but it's like super valuable because it's structured forms of being able to get insights. Um, everyone on our team has a better vantage point than I do on like what's actually happening in the company. And so being able to hear those things regularly, I think has been really, really helpful for us. Um, but ultimately, like if you were to boil it down to uh, a metric, um, I think like employee satisfaction is probably the biggest thing that a leader can do. If you hire the right people and train the right people and get them in the right seats, right? Your job is to make them like love their job and love what they're doing, right? And so they can unlock themselves uh, and, and be able to do their work really well. And so our like team values all revolve around empowerment and like training and happiness and culture. And I think that sort of thing, you know, there's there's a lot of different jobs that people can take and salaries are all over the place right now in the tech world, right? I think being able to have a job that like you know, fulfills you is the thing that lets you best do the work that you can do. Yeah, I agree with that. What, what's one piece of advice you wish you had known and you would tell your 25-year-old self today? Oh, that's a good question. Um, it's a good thing I'm older than 25. Um, <laughs> so, let's see. It could be uh, early 20s. I mean, it could be one, when, you know, a time in the phase where you feel like, okay, I should have I should have went back and told him something. No, no, no. no I'm, I'm, I'm in my mid-30s right now, so it's okay. So, I, um, my, okay, so my conception, I think, of entrepreneurship when I was younger um, was that entrepreneurship is a moment in time. You build a business and it happens, right? I think I've come to the realization recently uh, that entrepreneurship is way more like a career. And in like any other job, right? Like you take learnings from one to the other and multiple time founders have experience in founding, right? That that uh, pays dividends. So I, I sort of have... Um, many different types of ventures that I have been working on, right? So uh, my wife runs a cocktail ingredient company that is it's called Pratt Standard. It's great for that cocktails. Uh, it is a uh, it is very much like a product-based business, right? And so like you fill bottles, you sell them to people, they like them, they rebuy. There's a cost of inventory, there's a cost of production. Um, you know, it's very traditional in terms of like your cogs and finances, right? We run a service business, right? And so we've got uh, people. People have hours. There's an hourly rate. There's billability. There's sort of all that stuff that revolve around our finances. Aspire was a venture back company, right? We raised a lot of money. We spent it down. We raised our next round of money. We spent it down, right? And our our goal was valuation increase. That's what we were thinking about day in and day out. Um, you know, prior to that at Everfi, right? It was like very much like a high growth, high growth tech company. Um, but they had this huge profitability element, right? That they were thinking about. And so there was sort of this hybrid of the two. of all those things are the same, right? Like it's the, we get really anchored around the differences between these things, but most of them involve like being a good leader, organizing people, being responsible, following through on things, these sort of principles that apply over and over. And I think seeing that 
set of values in many different environments is what progresses you as a, as an entrepreneur. And so, yeah, I guess my advice to my 25 year old self would be like, don't think of this as like a one shot thing. Think of this as like, you're going to be doing this for 30 years, you know, like part of Mm. the entrepreneurial journey is going to be growing and developing and learning yourself. So don't like hold any one thing too tightly, right? And uh, and expect this to go on for a very long time and kind of think about your career arc like that. Um, and I think now I'm starting to do that in a way that I didn't before. And I think it's been a lot more fulfilling and rewarding. That's, 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 I never thought about it that way, like putting entrepreneurs like a, a job where people are so against the idea of calling it a role or a title, but it makes sense. Well, you're, an enge- you're an engineer. Uh, you start off by doing, you know, basic stuff and then you build your way up and you get better. And then you become a senior engineer and, you know, then you become manager and whatever director. And I mean, that's the same way with entrepreneurship, right? By having your first few ventures, you get better and better. And I mean, you have to refine those skills that come with being an entrepreneur, right? Which yeah. I think, yeah, yeah, that's a really good way. I think it's very similar. I think I said this before, but there's so many similarities, I think, between good code design and good business design, you know, um, and, you know, modularity, scalability, all that stuff kind of plays in both worlds. Um, I think that, like, this idea of abstracting up a level and sort of building principles that are sort of like not language dependent or code dependent has a parallel in the business world, right, where you see these patterns play themselves out over and over. I have a, a great business mentor who his name is Tom Rafa, and he... Uh, he says that he basically sees the same 30 issues play up over and over and over again, right? And once he's done things for many different times, right, he sees those issues and he knows how to handle them because he's seen them in so many different environments. It is funny if you kind of think about boiling down a lot of code, you see the same 30 issues over and over, right? You boil down a business, you do see those issues kind of play out. And so I think without experience, it's very hard to identify those things. And some people can do it. And those people are way smarter than I am, right? But I need I needed to see those things play out two or three times and experiment with them and try them to be able to um, kind of identify those things, right? And uh, and move forward with them. So. Mm. What, what are some of the biggest challenges you're currently facing in order to continue to grow Think Nimble? Meaning, you know, what's keeping what keeps you up at night these days? Yeah, it's a good question. So we're... Um, we are um, entering that stage. So agencies are funny, right? Because agencies, um, it's very hard to have a mid-sized agency. Um, the, a five-person agency, easy, no overhead, no sort of like structure. You don't really need an office space. You can kind of work from home, all that stuff, right? Um, mid-sized agencies have a slight cost of overhead and your margin needs to be large enough to be able to accommodate that cost of overhead. And then large agencies have the ability to support that overhead, right? So it's, it's you very rarely see 25 to 50 person agencies. They're either small or they're bigger, right? Um, and that's not always true, right? It really depends on the industry and the, and the stage. I think management consulting is a little bit of an exception, right? It's relatively high margin. Um, but um, we're, we're sort of hitting that point right now. We don't, we don't have an HR person on our team. We do a lot of our uh, finances internally, right? Um, we work with a couple of really good vendors and partners um, who help support it. Um, but a lot of us are client facing right now. Like we work with clients day in and day out. I think we're getting to a stage right now where in order to level up, we need to add kind of this level of, um, I'll call it overhead, right? Level of people who are sort of internally supporting. Recruiting is becoming a challenge. Um, uh, sort of like internal team training is something that I think we could start to bring in people in-house for. Um, you know, HR benefits, finances, all that stuff. And knowing the right moment to pull that lever, I think is, uh, is definitely something that I think about a lot. I think about culture a lot, right? I think as we get bigger and bigger, what made us into a startup uh, is, uh, you know, we're becoming, you know, bigger and bigger. So it's harder to like, stay to those roots. 
And so um, I, I believe strongly in the idea of sort of like principle-led um, leadership where you come up with principles and values and you have those principles and values be propagated across the team and that decentralizes decision-making in a way that you trust anyone in your company to be able to make decisions in a similar way to anyone else, right? So um, codifying and identifying those principles at this stage of our business, I think is really critical to have us get to the next phase. I do think that like inflection points in businesses tend to relate to levels of management. You know, if you've got a five-person team and everyone's at the same level, then you hire a manager of those five people, that's an inflection point. And then if you hire a manager of managers of two teams of five, that becomes an inflection point. And those, those like, you know, you don't have to have really structured forms of communication when you have five people. But when you have another person, suddenly there's this idea of reporting and this idea of information asymmetry and this idea that one person may not know what the other person knows, right? And that issue propagates over time. So we're definitely going through a lot of those kind of like growth things. It is interesting because this is probably unlike many of the listeners who are on this call. We're not venture-backed. Like we're totally bootstrapped, right? And we're, we're completely, um, you know, we're very much like a service business, right? So no outside capital, um, profitable every month. Like that's sort of how we, we operate our, our business. And so as part of that, right, we are operating within these like pretty static um, confines of like billability and utilization while also thinking about these kind of like growth moments ourselves, right? And so um, I think all of those things, I don't know, I just kind of like babbled at you for like five minutes there, but all those things are things that I'm thinking about pretty actively. No, no, those are all real challenges of, of running an agency. Makes, makes complete sense. Um, who or what are maybe some of the best three resources? It can be maybe books, maybe people, mentors, or people you follow who you'd say have been the most instrumental to your success over these last few years and would share for people to check out? Ooh, this is a good question. Um, okay, so one book that I recommend to almost all entrepreneurs, particularly those who are going through uh, venture financing, is um, this book, Venture Deals. Um, I think it's like pretty commonly recommended uh, from venture capitalists and, like, um, and angel investors. But uh, we were going through our first round of financing at Aspire, and I was like, super overwhelmed. And I didn't really know at all, like what the terms on the term sheet look like. And a friend recommended this to me. I spent a weekend and I read it and I just felt so much better about that process. It's very tactical. I think the tagline is like, uh, be as smart as your lawyer. And, um, it, you know, like financing for your business is like one of the, one of the biggest things to understand as a CEO, the money that comes your way, right. Comes with all of these terms attached to it. Right. And it feels like money, uh, it feels like revenue and it feels like assets, but it's really debt, right? It's a thing that you have to pay back and you have to like figure out a way to produce a return on. And so oftentimes, you know, like people will congratulate folks who raise a round of financing. They're like, congrats, you just raised like a million dollars or whatever, right? And then on your balance sheet, you see negative a million dollars, right? Because you're suddenly in debt because of a convertible note or whatever, right? So it's always like an interesting thing. Uh, and it's, it's a really good thing to, I think, be... be um, super aware of. And so this book goes through it in great detail. I highly recommend that. Um, it goes through like, you know, like um, what financing is, how valuations work, uh, just rules of thumb that he has as a venture capitalist about how you manage different types of financing, how you think about budgets in terms of what you're getting, like term, like ratchets, all that stuff, right? He goes through them and it's just very tactical and, and I highly recommend it. Um, I really like, personally, I really like biographies. I think uh, mm -hmm. a lot of business books are um, fairly generic and they tend to be like, uh, they tend to be, um, really useful at certain moments in time. But I think biographies are really cool because you can see tactically how someone handled it. Uh, and so um, I really love reading kind of combinations of business books and biographies. So there's a book, Principles by Ray Dalio that I really recommend. 
Um, that idea of principle-driven leadership, I think, is something that he talks about a lot. In the very first few chapters of the book, he says that um, my leadership style boils down to the idea of creating a human algorithm and then distributing that human algorithm across my organization. And you can't do that unless you've defined your personal stack of principles that you want your business to operate by. Um, and he does that both in a personal sense, right? Like how he wants to live his life in accordance with his morals and his values. And then also in a business sense, how he wants his business and all the people around him to be making decisions and prioritizing, understanding things. Um, so it's very good. Um, I recommend that. And then I don't know if this is, uh, I don't know if this counts, but we've just recently started doing coaching across our whole organization. Um, and um, that is something that uh, I was, I was a little bit, um, not for any like one reason, but I was just skeptical of the cost of it. Right. I was like looking at the cost and I was like, Oh my God, this is a really big expense. I'm not really sure if it's going to be worth it for our team, but it is like a contradiction that I have. Right. Because I was saying people are the most important thing. I want to decentralize leadership. I want everyone to have a shared vocabulary. Um, but, uh, I was like, Oh, we shouldn't invest in coaching. Right. That seems, that seems crazy. Now that we've actually done it, um, we've done it for about six months now. Um, we work with a great coach. His name is Chase Damiano, uh, here in DC. Um, and, uh, we put some of our team leads through a coaching program that he has. And then he is individually coaching, uh, me and my co-founder and, um, sort of creating alignment across all of those folks. It's been supremely helpful. Um, the, Two really interesting things that have come out of that. So one, I think that there are so many business frameworks that are out there, right? Like you can look at like the entrepreneurial operating system and like, you know, there's all of these books that you can read that kind of like codify the same principles in different ways. Um, but having that framework defined and shared across your whole team and just like choosing one shortcuts a lot of decision making, right? Like you can sit down and you can say, hey, look, this OKR needs to be like this, right? And so we need to do this, this, and this, right? And you don't go through the whole process of re-explaining like, okay, these are our quarterly goals. This is how it works. Everyone knows the framework that you're using. No one has to go through that process at the beginning of the meeting and everyone can like quickly align on what you're talking about. So that's been really good. And then also like, I think teams oftentimes have capabilities to have these conversations internally, but it's really hard to create space for that um, in a structured way against the responsibilities of your day-to-day work. And by working with a coach, um, they're trained and facilitated in making that space. And so it forces everyone to spend an hour, you know, every week and like think about the idea of leadership and think about the idea of what it is that can make our team better. And I think that sort of thing has been, has been really valuable. So was that three? That was three. Yeah. Those are my three. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love principles. Great book by Ray Dalio. And uh, yeah, I've been, I've been thinking about getting a coach for a while. I've, you know, it's been kind of in the back of my head. And uh, so if if a lot of people highly recommend it, it seems like you do as well. So, and I think it's one of those things you really do have to find the right person for you. Like I find, um, you know, one of the really great things about Chase is he's very much like a, like a framework driven coach. And he thinks a lot about um, the tools that are in your tool belt that you can deploy as a leader or as an employee in an organization. And that mm. style of coaching is like distinctly different than like, you know, leadership coaching that I've done in the past, right. Or speaking coaching that I've done in the past. And so like that style of coaching, I think really resonates with the stage of business we're at. Um, but it may not be the right fit for everyone, right? So it really depends on the style of coach and the personality of the coach and your fit and all that stuff. So, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, Neil, kind of final question. What does success mean to you today? Whether that's personally, business, financially, life, you know, there's no right answer. How do you, how do you find your own success? Yeah. Um, I really love working on interesting things. And I, um, you know, I think going back to the question about what I talk about with my 25 year old self, right? Like I really thought there was this kind of like, 
entrepreneurial moment, you would exit entrepreneurship and then you were kind of done. Right. And I realized that like that, when you say it like that, you're kind of like, Oh, that's not a life I would be happy with. Right. But like, we sort of get caught into that trap a lot as entrepreneurs and we don't think about the next stage or the future. Right. We just kind of think about this entrepreneurial venture. And so for me, like, I'd like to spend the rest of my life working on really interesting things surrounded by people that I admire. And I think I'm, I'm lucky because I think think Nimble is really helping me do that. Right. Like we've got like, an amazing team, really senior developers, really smart product managers. And I'm just like inspired by the group of people that we brought in. Um, I would love to continue working in that way for the rest of my life, right? And it may not be with Think Nimble, it may be other organizations or other ventures, and maybe as an investor, it may be in other paradigms or whatever. But as long as I can go into work every day and be like, hey, I actually like the five people that I hung out with today are people that I admire and I like, um, I think that would be a successful, uh, successful life. Cool. Love it. Love it. Uh, yeah, so... This has been a great, glad you're able to join today on, on SAS District and make it through. I know we've had some challenges in the last couple of days. Um, where, where can founders get in touch with you, learn more about you, or if they want to say, you know, check out uh, Think Nimble? Yeah. Um, so two ways. Um, my email is just neil, N-E-I-L, at thinknimble.com. You can reach out to me. Um, I don't really do social media very well, so I would prefer email if you want to reach out. Um, we do have this program that I'd love to plug shamelessly for a second here. Um, okay. called Office Hours. Um, I think I mentioned this before, all of our developers and all of our uh, product managers have some entrepreneurial background. And because we work with entrepreneurs all the time, I think that is like a really important thing. A few of our developers are like working on their own startups. A few of our product managers, you know, have businesses in the past. They were early stage founders themselves. And so they really get that entrepreneurial world. And um, one of the big challenges that I think a lot of early stage entrepreneurs have is they just want to talk to a developer for an hour about a specific technical question. And you don't want to get high level advice and you don't want to be like, you know, like getting really deep into the weeds. You just sort of know, hey, I've got these three wireframes, which of these do you think is the most buildable, right? So we do this program every Friday. It's called Office Hours uh, with our tech team where you can sign on. We assign a developer who has an affinity to the issue area that you're working on. And it's great training for our developers because it reminds them of the entrepreneurial journey that they're working on all day, right? Uh, In a way that's not project specific. And I think it's really great for entrepreneurs because it's like a really focused uh, hour with the developer who's like helping you think through a technical problem. And we do ask for like a decent amount of prep beforehand. So you have to fill out this like questionnaire about like, the you know, making sure it's a deep technical question. If you're asking like how to hire a developer, that's probably not the right fit for this, but like a real sort of technical trade-off decision. Uh, we love talking about that stuff. So um, if you want to reach out or you find yourself as a founder with one of those technical problems, just go to our website, thinknibble.com, uh, click on office hours. Um, it's uh, every Friday, but we can make exceptions if you're in a different time zone or whatever. Every Friday from 10 to 12 Eastern time. And um, I, it's a very fun part of my jobs. Awesome. Awesome. We'll add that link to our show notes. So people check it out. Definitely check that out. Take advantage of those, those office hours. So thank you. Thank you so much, Neil. This has been great. And I appreciate you jumping on today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you all for listening in to this episode and joining SAS District today. Don't forget to leave a review and subscribe for future episodes where we interview top leaders in the SaaS industry. If you're a SaaS company looking to grow and unlock the true value of your business, get in touch with us at horizoncapital.com and myself or one of our consultants will provide a free assessment to help you get there and hit your goals. If you have any feedback or suggestions for this podcast, please DM us on Instagram or LinkedIn at Horizon Capital and help us improve our content for you all. Thanks again and hope to see you on the next one.